due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12 or those of a sensitive nature should turn off now. Hi and welcome to the Murder Tales Podcast, where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name is Chris Britton, and in each episode I'm joined by the creator of the Murder Tales series of books and criminal historian, H.N. Lloyd, or as we know, Lloydy. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you very much. It's okay, I'm going to let you put that back on first. I forgot to put my headphones in. Mm. For anybody listening, this is what the professional output that we are. We're sat here and I forgot to make myself up. There's no we in this part of you not being professional. <laughs> there we are. I'm all, I'm all mic'd it's, up now. So in the last episode, we were introduced to John George Haig, better known as the Acid Bath Murderer. What we learned in the last episode was that he was a killer who killed for financial gain after killing three members of the Max Swan family and claiming their entire estate. We also learned that this case also has a connection to Doctor Who, which I and never Star knew. Wars. And Star Wars as well. So you're obviously getting your geek on on this one so so let's pick up from where we left off so lloydie take it away so the mcswans have been murdered their bodies have been melted in acid he's in complete control of all their assets and he goes around saying he's the new landlord of the buildings and collecting the rents from their properties in kensington and this provides uh haig with quite a nice little income for several years but then by 1948, Haig was running out of money. He'd burnt through all of the money that he'd made by killing the McSwans and gathering up all the money they had in their bank accounts. And he realised that questions might start to be asked about the properties. So he sold them and he'd burnt through the money on them. He was a, lived a high life. He, he ate expensive food, drank expensive drinks. He gambled an awful lot. And by 1948, he was looking at being bankrupted. He decides that he has to murder again. This time, he picks Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife, Rosa Lee. He initially meets the Hendersons when he deliberately goes about looking for an affluent couple to kill. He sees a house for sale and he goes and views the house. During the house viewing, he completely woos the Hendersons. He sees that they have a piano. He sits at the piano and he bangs out a few jolly tunes. He gets them singing along. He invites them to dinner. They go to for dinner with him. He really does beguile them with his stories. And then at the end of the meal, he seals a deal by offering them more for the property than it's worth. The house sale starts to go through and then Haig drops the huge uh, bombshell that he suddenly had some sort of business problems and he can't actually buy the house. But by this point, the Hendersons quite like Haig and they continue to be friends with him. And over the next few months, they invite him for dinner some more. They introduce him to their friends and Haig actually invests a small amount of money in a business that Dr. Henderson has, which is a doll's hospital in Fulham. 
Now, I don't know if you remember these types of businesses. Before we had a, the, the kind of buy and throw away kind of behaviours we have now, children would, would not only own toys and love them, they would hand them down to their siblings. And if dolls and teddy bears damaged in any way, rather than thrown away, you would take them to a, what they would call a doll's hospital where they would be mended. It's kind of like what you see on the repair shop or, or on the BBC. But not as emotional. No, nobody cried at the doll's hospital in Birkenhead Market. So Haig really has implanted himself right in the middle of the Henderson's life. And one day he says uh, to Dr. Henderson, look, I've invested in your business. I've got an idea you might like. By this point, Hague had set up a company called Hurstley Products, which he was using as a front for buying the acids and things like that. It had a, a rather rundown workshop in the middle of a miserable courtyard. And he invited Dr. Henderson there. And he used the same trick again of distracting Henderson so that he wasn't looking. Whereupon uh, Haig shot him in the back of the head actually using a .38 Enfield revolver that he'd stolen from the Henderson's house. He then set to work putting Dr. Henderson's body in a vat of acid and it boiling away. Whilst that's happening, he calls up Rosalie Henderson. He says, look, Dr. Henderson's been taken ill while he's here. I think he should come immediately. She goes into this miserable workshop that the this Hursley is working out of. And again, Haig shoots her in the head, puts her in a vat of acid. So he liquidates their assets whilst quite literally liquidating their bodies. So once the bodies had melted down, this is where Haig started to make mistakes. As we mentioned in the last episode, when he murdered the McSwans, he got rid of the bodies by pouring them down a drain. In this workshop that he now had, he didn't have a drain to pour the sludge down so he simply just poured it into the courtyard and let it seep into the ground what he didn't realize was that that would leave evidence behind there would be bone fragments there would be teeth there would be gallstones and that all sits around in the courtyard waiting for a fateful day when he could be brought to justice but before that could happen there would be another victim and that sounds like a good time for a break And welcome back. So you've just alluded that there's going to be another victim and the evidence is being left in the courtyard. So how do we get to the next victim and come back to what would be deemed as evidence? Again, Haig had made a pretty penny from killing the Hendersons. It would be five years before he would start running out of money again. He's still living at the Onslow Court Hotel. He's still rather out of place there. He's the, the youngest resident. He, I think I described in the last episode, he's like a, a shark moving amongst the other residents. He's eyeing up who would be a good mark. He's seeing who's got money. He's seeing who's got relatives. He's seeing who would be missed. He takes them out for dinner. He starts to woo several of the residents. He's kind of quite clever and manipulative in the way he does this. Eventually, he decides that the perfect victim would be Mrs. Olive Durand Deacon. Now, she is quite a prim and proper old lady. She's always wearing expensive jewellery. She's always wearing a fur coat. She's 
got an expendable income and she's looking to invest this in some sort of way that would give her a good return by February 1953. So Haig decides that Mrs. Durham Deacon will be the next person he will invite to Hursley Products. He says, I'll, I'll show you a good day out. He takes her in his uh, little convertible sports car. He drives her down and takes her into what must have been quite surprising for her, a rather grotty and scrubby looking courtyard with a, a ramshackle outbuilding, which is which was Hursley Products essentially was. Distractor. We think that he did this by telling Mrs. Durham Deacon that he had developed something that is now quite commonplace, but which back then hadn't been invented yet, which is plastic stick-on fingernails. Plastic was quite a new thing at the time, relatively speaking, and there was new and exciting things being developed in plastic all the time. So Mrs. Durham Deacon comes in, Haig says, I've got some uh, examples of these fake plastic fingernails. And as she bends down to look at them, he comes up behind her, shoots her in the head, strips her body, sticks her in a vat of acid. He then, quite coldly, drives around to the local Greasy Spoon Cafe and orders poached eggs on toast and wolfs them down and has a little chat to the cafe owner as he's doing it. A few days later, goes back and pours what little is left of Mrs. Durham Deacon into the courtyard. See, what gets me with this courtyard, because the, the, the workshop isn't wasn't by itself. There was other workshops which were around this courtyard, was how he was able to actively remove the drums and dispose of their bodies without anybody noticing. It would be quite easy. You could go there after all the other businesses closed down, pour it away. Unless you were walking around looking at the floor, deliberately looking for stuff, you wouldn't really see what was left. It literally was minute fragments of bone, minute teeth. You know, so so there was very little evidence once he poured the acid into the ground. But the evidence was there in plain sight. It was. Once you started to look for it, you would easily find it. But if you weren't looking for it, you would easily miss it. Understandable. We're now on victim number six. So obviously, with most of these stories, when we get to the final number of victims that they were convicted for, it would suggest that things started going drastically wrong for him. It's normally an indicator that things are going to go drastically wrong for the killer. Yeah, and things quickly went wrong for Haig here. He assumed that uh, Mrs. Durandrekin wouldn't be missed, but he was wrong because Mrs. Durandrekin had become quite friendly with another resident of the Onslow Court Hotel, a lady by the Mrs. A lady by the name of Mrs. Lane, and she knew that Mrs. Durandrekin had a meeting set up with Haig, so she confronted him, and he kind of panicked here and basically said oh no i dropped her off uh, at the local army and navy store well this obviously was was complete bumcum because mrs olive Dunn deacon wouldn't shop at a local army and navy store there was nothing in there she'd want to buy so unsatisfied mrs lane went to the manager of the onslow court hotel now the manager of the onslow court hotel didn't like Haig. 
He thought he was creepy. He thought that he was too smarmy with the other female guests. Most of all, he didn't like him because he was late paying his bill. And that was the ultimate sin in this hotel. So he was looking for an excuse to try and get Haig out of the hotel. So Haig goes about living his life. He starts, you know, trying to get Mrs. Durin Deacon's money. The police start to investigate. And they realise that Haig has convictions, that he is a con man, that he's been to prison for fraud. And they realise that this Hersley products that, that, that he owns is effectively a front company. But they'd also discover that they're buying large quantities of acid. So they arrest Haig and take him in for questioning now, Haig is feeling quite cocky at this point, because if you remember, he's misinterpreted the law and he thinks that if the police don't have a body, there's no crime to answer. So rather than sit there with his mouth shut and, and say nothing, he basically goes to the police. Yeah, I killed them. I killed them and I, I melted their bodies in acid and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. So the police go back to Hursley. They go into the courtyard, they start looking around, and they find teeth. They find fragments of bone. They find gallbladder stones. And the police decide that they can make a case out of this, and they charge Haig with murder. So given that he's a bit of a chancer, he must have had a really good reason why he was innocent. Nope. He, he happily admitted that he'd murdered them. It was all because of the fact that, that, that there wasn't a body. However, when he started to realise that this wasn't going to be a legal defence at trial, he had to come up with another defence. And that's when things get interesting. That's when he comes up with the vampire defence. Okay, the vampire defence. Yes. The only way that the Hague realised he was going to escape the noose was if he could prove he was insane. So in order to do that, he began to say that the whole point of the murders was that he could drain the victims and drink their blood because he was a vampire. But then either way, that still doesn't explain why he disposed the body in acid. And I I can't quite understand why that would actually work as a conceivable defence. Well, it didn't effectively, but it was the best that that he had. The thing is, with a lot of these defences which are based around insanity, the issue that you always have is the fact that their actions are not insane, they're calculated, they're planned. Mm. And the effect of when people are uh, deemed as being crazy or mad or, or something like that, yeah, okay, you've got to have something wrong with you to consider murdering somebody in the first place. However, to make it out as though they're just mad is an oversimplification of what's actually going on. And I, what I find is, is the fact that they are calculating. They, mm-hmm. they, they know what they're doing. It's planned. And if you remember, the, the laws on insanity defences back then were incredibly crass and oversimplified. It was the McNaughton rules. So did you know what you were doing? Did you know it was wrong? And if the answer was yes to either of them, you didn't have an insanity defence. But in a way, Haig had a real ace up his sleeve because he was defended by a legendary barrister called David Maxwell Fife. Now, David Maxwell Fife would not only go on to be the Lord High Chancellor of Great Britain, he would also become Home Secretary. He was a brilliant legal mind. 
he had prosecuted the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials. Not only had he prosecuted, he was the lead prosecutor, in fact, and he went on to draft the European Convention on Human Rights. So David Maxwell's fife standing in, in the pantheon of, of legal minds cannot be understated. And this man was defending Haig. So given his credentials, Haig must have been quite confident. He was. Also, they had another ace up their sleeves in a doctor called Dr. Yellowlease. And he almost said the perfect thing that was music to David Maxwell Fife's ears. He effectively said that the psychology of Haig and the psychology of Adolf Hitler were very similar. They both suffered from the same sort of paranoid delusions. And this was the foundation that David Maxwell Fife used for his insanity defence. And Haig kind of really did the best he could to, to make himself look mad in the dock. And he did this by making it look like he wasn't concerned at all. He would walk into court every day immaculately dressed. And rather than paying attention to what was going on, he would sit there doing the Times crossword. I don't think that is the definition of looking mad or insane. That just comes across as being completely rude and completely arrogant. Well, exactly. And that's how the jury took it. So Haig believed that if he acted in this very unconcerned manner, that he didn't really understand what was going on about him. He didn't understand the proceedings. And he embodied that by reading reading the terms and doing the crossword. Then the jury would believe the insanity defence. But they didn't. They just thought he was a very arrogant man. So how long did the trial go on for? It was an exceedingly short trial. It lasted just days. The judges summing up was so damning against Haig Haig himself described it as a masterpiece. When the jury left to consider the verdict, they were out of the room for just 15 minutes before they returned with a unanimous guilty verdict. Now, you would think that the trial would be the end of the matter and everything would die down, but it didn't, because it then led on to another trial where it was one of the first times in legal history when a journalist was tried for contempt of court. And that was because in the Daily Mirror, Sylvester Bolum, who was a well-respected journalist at the time, described Haig as a murderer before the verdict had come in. So there was a lot of controversy swelling around this. Haig put in a an appeal. People wondered, would, would this appeal be upheld? Would, would this contempt of court could that you know have influenced the jury it didn't of course because they would have been cut off from the outside world and his conviction was upheld and Haig was was hung within the, the mandatory three weeks of his conviction which was the law at the time I think I've gone to this in other episodes unlike in America where uh, an execution can drag on for years even decades in the United Kingdom at the time you had one appeal if that failed that was it. You were executed within three Sundays of your conviction. What were the lessons that were learned afterwards? Well, this was a case that really did show that forensic science could make or break cases. Before the Hay case, most murders had been good old fashioned police work. Police 
hitting the, the, the local neighbourhoods, gathering witness statements, building up a case of circumstantial evidence, as it were, that was strong and robust and that, that would, you know, convict a person. The Hay case was mostly down to proving that there had been a murder despite the fact there was no bodies and proving that the evidence that was found could be linked directly to the murdered victims. So it really did put forensic science front and centre, showed that science had come a long way and that science could lead to convictions. So from then on in, forensic science became a consideration in virtually all the major murder cases. Some have argued that the Hague case was the real last of the golden age of the murder cases. It was the last of the ones where people queued up around the block to get a place in the public gallery. Uh, and there are many reasons for that. Part of that was because the, the so-called romance of crime had gone and that you didn't have these big name police officers building these cases in such a way and that it was now down to scientists in laboratories solving the cases and that took some of the romance away from it it was also the fact that other entertainments were coming along that so that people weren't as interested in the trials anymore so people going to the cinema tv was a big thing radio so arguably haig was that last golden age murderer there's also the aspect that it's post-war as well so people have seen horrific crimes committed in the act of war so maybe this kind of crime people didn't really have the tolerance for it afterwards thinking this is another madman who's murdered somebody in such a horrific way that could be part of it as well i mean the, the second world war as we know sure some of the worst atrocities ever committed by man and there was i think for for a long time afterwards people didn't want to in, indulge their darker whims and and, and take pleasure as they as they had been in, in these trials they wanted lighter fun as it were to, to distract themselves from from the horrors that had happened it's always been one of those cases which fascinate because the the whole method was based upon a misunderstanding yeah effectively haig was a very conceited man who thought he was more intelligent than he was and the very fact that he wasn't as intelligent as he thought he was led to his own undoing. He was hoist by his own petard. The fact that the man thought he could sit there in front of the police and fully confess to his murders and there'd be no comeback on him just shows the conceited arrogance that he had. There is one thing because the police obviously had to build a case against them, although there weren't any bodies. There are cases which have happened over the years since where where killers have been sent down and there hasn't been bodies uh, i can remember the most recent crime i can think of was was the murder of uh april jones from mcconnell um where mark bridger was convicted of her abduction and murder um although they never found her remains yes that that was a, a quite a, a sad case a number of years ago i seem to remember so again the conviction was based upon forensic evidence because they were unable to find her remains. So these kind of cases still do happen, but in different ways. 
having a body obviously makes a stronger case because you can see how the person died. You may find forensic evidence on that they can link to a killer, but it can be done without a body. Although it is important to note that historically the reasons why you wouldn't get people convicted with, without body and that was always because the fear was you would be halfway through a murder trial and then the victim would turn up and say hello you've got it wrong i'm actually still alive so that's why historically they always did like to have a body to actually prove a murder had been committed but in these cases the forensic science was undeniable exactly Right, Lloydie, thank you very much. It's been an interesting case, so I can't wait to see what we go on to in the next episode. So, Lloydie, where else can they go and read up on this case? Obviously, there's my book, Murder Tales, The Boundaries, which features the the acid bath murders and a host of other cases from the golden age of murder. But there's been plenty of others. Gordon Honeycomb, it's featured in his classic, The Murders of the Black Museum. Yeah, Gordon Honeycomb, he was... TVM, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Also, if you can get your hands on it, quite a very, it's a very rare book these days. It's like hen's teeth getting a hold of this. Volume 78 of the notable British trial series. It's the complete transcript of John George Haig's trial. That'd be quite interesting to read. Right, if you have any questions, concerns or any comments, please get in contact with us by going to at Murder Tales Pod, or you can get in contact with Lordy directly by going to HN Lloyd won. So all that leaves me to say is until next time, I've been Chris Britton and he's been HN Lloyd. Even and all. If you enjoyed this show, please go onto iTunes and leave us a lovely five-star review. And even better, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Murder Tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by H.N. Lloyd. If you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Britton, who's created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Murder Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod casting network. You can check out our other shows, such as the pub politics podcast or even the tragical history tour all you have to do is go and search on your favorite podcast provider